Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Drea Darby, a doctoral student in entomology at Cornell University, working on host-microbe environment interactions, as well as a recipient of a 2020 Ford Foundation pre-doctoral fellowship. She earned her bachelor's degree from University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We chat about vinegar flies, and I get a bit of a crash course in transgenic fruit flies, the moment she realized she wants to do research, as well as her advocacy for including the history of science in the scientific curriculum a trailblazer for her family, in her words. Drea talks about her experience being a first-generation college graduate, her transition from planning to attend nursing school to becoming a bio major, and later on planning to pursue a PhD, and her goal to be the thing she didn't have in her life as a Black and Filipino woman interested in science. Drea Darby, welcome to Tidbits of Research. You are in the field of entomology. And you work on fruit flies. Yes. They're also, in the actual entomology world, considered vinegar flies. At least with the type of fruit fly I work with, Drosophila melanogaster, that fly is considered vinegar flies. And then there is an actual other type of fruit fly. They're called true fruit flies, called tephridids. Those are mm-hmm. true fruit flies. And then there are vinegar flies, which is like Drosophilum. The fake ones. Yeah, they're like yeah, they're like the fake ones. If you look in like a like an entomology field guide, like they'll show you like an image of Drosophila melanogaster. They'd be like vinegar flies, also better known as fruit flies. And our colloquialism. What is your favorite fact about fruit flies before we go into the research bit? Uh, I guess this could connect you to the research bit. It could connect to the research bit. I I think my favorite thing, at least about the type of fruit fly I work with, is just the amount of just genetic tools out there that we can work with them. Like all the types of transgenic fruit flies we can create in lab. It's a really great model organism for that. And so I think that's what's really cool about this specific fruit fly, because I know with other insects, it's... There's not as many resources and tools available to do all sorts of cool functional genetics, which is basically physiology. So tell me more about these transgenic fruit flies. Yeah, so transgenic for people who aren't familiar with the term, you can kind of think of them like, you know, they're genetically modified organisms in lab. So you can say, take a gene from another organism, like, uh, for example, We have this really cool system where you can take this gene from a yeast. I don't want to get into like, it's so hard to not talk about jargon and things like that. But the protein itself is um, called GAL4. In fruit flies, it's like the GAL4 UAS system where you take this gene that is found in a yeast and you can insert it into like the germline of the fruit flies So you can create like a a whole line of flies that have this specific type of gene and you can have it be specific to a certain tissue or you can have it be full body expression. So if you want to say like control expression and say like the, the intestines or like the brain of a fruit fly, um, you would have it so that it would only be expressed in that certain part of the fruit fly. And so like you'll have like one parental unit that has like the GAL4 protein um, or GAL4 gene inserted into its genome. And then you'll have like another line, we call this the reporter line. And this could be like, if you want to knock down expression of a certain gene, 
without going into the full-blown like molecular genetics of it but but essentially you have like this reporter line where it'll express this um double-stranded rna in the case of you're doing genetic knockdown where where like the the body does not like seeing double-stranded rnas because that can be like a sign of a virus because you know you can have double-stranded rna viruses for example and it's like an antiviral machinery and we basically kind of hijacked this in fruit flies as like a way to uh, knock down expression of certain genes so by doing really cool genetic crosses like if, if you learned about genetics in like high school and you have like the this is like a whole other topic about like using mother and father type names but it hasn't really been like super mainstream yet to say like the sperm producer or the egg producer which may not be fully accurate in different species but at least in the case of drosophila there are like the male and the female type of binary there but where you have um one parent that has the gal4 protein or gal4 gene and you have the other parent that has like the reporter or the uas sequence and when you pair them together and you get your f1 or your next generation the children of those two parents they would have both the GAL4 protein and the UAS sequence that would then initiate the production of this double-stranded RNA. And so that mRNA is only expressed when that GAL4 protein is present. And so, gosh, I'm out here giving a full-blown lecture on this. This is great. But, <laughs> I love it. but essentially, that GAL4 protein will, or GAL4 gene will produce this protein that will then bind to this UAS sequence that will then initiate transcription of this um, double-stranded RNA. That will then go forth this process where that double-stranded RNA is chopped up and it forms this complex where now the antiviral machinery will now recognize the sequence of that mRNA, for example. So any native mRNA that is created. So if we wanted to knock down the expression of a like a gene that creates the pigment like eye color in the fly, it'll target the sequence of that mRNA that is being naturally produced within the fly. And so by inserting these various types of genes within the flies, a way for us to get specific like knockdown, you can either do whole body or you can do tissue specific knockdown of the messenger RNA that is being produced. And that's just one of like the many other ways within at least the fruit fly system of how we can like genetically alter them. Uh, that one's really nice if you want to control space and time of when genes are expressed or knocked down. So you could do it, like I said earlier, like tissue specific. So if you want to knock down expression of a certain gene in the eye, more like specific cells. And that's a really great way to understand the function of a certain gene in a different part of the body, because there are genes that are, of course, like on in different tissues, but they may be having different types of function in different parts of the body. And also... For the type of stuff I do, the kind of genes I'm interested in knocking down does have impacts on development. So there's also another way where we can control, like I said, you can control um, space, so tissue, and then time. So when these genes are actually knocked down. So if I want to knock them down, like when they are in the juvenile stage, or if they're like 10-day-old adults, 
we have like drug or temperature induced GAL4 expression. So like the GAL4 protein that's needed to then express the UAS sequence to then knock down expression of the gene. It'll only do that in the presence of a drug or if the temperature is higher. So then you could do it at a certain time in their development to see how in that stage of development for the insect that this gene is playing a role in. And some of the genes I'm really interested in manipulating expression of is really important for the development of the fly. And I don't want me knocking down the expression to impact the development to then impact whatever other phenotype that I'm looking at. I want to see not the impact that development has on this phenotype, but the actual, like, if I knock down this, if this gene has reduced expression at a certain time in this fly's life, what does that look like? I don't know, it's really amazing. Especially when I talk to like some of my colleagues who do things in vertebrates, it's like, I could never dream of doing this type of work, especially in a high throughput manner, because I could get like hundreds of transgenic flies to work with versus like people who do this type of genetic work in like mice where like a sample of like four or six is great. But like for fly work, it's like, oh, like you could have like quadruple that number. So long as you're like keeping track of your flies, of course, but. Keep them healthy. Keep them healthy, yeah. What are some of the implications of this kind of research for, if any, (laughs) non-insects? Yeah, so just not just like my research in particular, but anyone who does research in a model organism, especially invertebrate model organisms like fruit flies or um, if people pay attention to science Twitter and know about nematodes or they're also known as uh, C. elegans. They're another uh, model organism that's genetically manipulated a lot. It's that there's a lot of conservation in terms of like, say, molecular pathways between inverts and vertebrates. I know we like all look very different and we had different functions, of course, but there are genes that can be identified in humans or other mammals that have orthologs or a smaller word for ortholog being like they have a similar type of gene or a similar type of, say, like cell or protein that functions like they do in humans. So if there's like basic science that we just don't understand in humans, it's like, oh, if we give a person this amount of, say, like glucose and it impacts their expression of a certain gene, but it's like really hard to piece apart that network where you can't, you can't do the types of experiments we do with invertebrates. You know, we, we sack the flies, we kill the flies off. We can like tear apart their tissues. You can't do that in people to get at like basic science. There are ways where you can, where it can be more ethical, but overall having a lot of conserved evolution across mammals, across insects, and even in worms that, that does have value in terms of being translational or like understanding like the basic science of it to then further, I say empower application further on, but for sure it's like, it's hard to have like applied science and not really understand what's, it's always nice. I feel like it's nice to understand like the actual like underpinnings of what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Is that what first attracted you to this kind of research direction? I can't say. So like I started off, so my undergrad, 
was at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I was raised in Las Vegas. And so my first experience with research was really just kind of like the awe of like discovering things you just didn't really know. And I didn't know a lot about like this like molecular genetics type stuff until like maybe I had graduated from college. I really was interested in like the microbiome and like the gut microbiome as well as um I don't know how I really got into this, but at some point in my development as an undergrad, I was really into soil microbiomes and plants. I was initially actually a pre-nursing student as an undergrad, and I had no idea that undergraduates could do research or like, you know, just what type of careers they were available to me outside of like, you know, being like a, a nurse, doctor, teacher, engineer, lawyer type of thing. And I was taking this microbiology class and for the lab component of the course, you get this unknown bacterium and you have to use these different biological or biochemical tests and using bioinformatics techniques to identify the genus and bonus points if you can pinpoint the specific species of the bacterium that you have. And I just thought that whole process of using like my hands and like doing these experiments and kind of like doing this thought process of like, okay, like I know this. And I don't see this occurring in the bacterium that I'm working with. So it's probably not that type of organism. And it's that whole process of like using critical thinking skills and piecing things together was just really exciting to me. And I'm just like, wow, like how can like I make this be a job? And then I learned that like the TA that I had in my class as a graduate student, I didn't know graduate students were a thing. I had no idea what grad students did or what they were and And so then I learned that research was like a viable career path I could pursue. And I thought that was like amazing. And so I was like, how do I get into that? And so um, against my mother's, I say wishes, but I had switched my major to biology, which at first she was excited about because she thought I was doing like pre-med. But I was like, no, I'm going to try this like whole uh, be a research scientist thing. Yeah. And I was applying to nursing school at the time. And so she was excited for that. But I was like, yeah, I don't think I like people as much as I thought I did. And this is when I kind of like really at least got into this realm of like working with things that don't have a backbone. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I love that way of putting it. Yeah, I just like I thought the human anatomy and physiology classes I took were really interesting. But I was just like, man, like I just don't find humans, for example, that interesting. It wasn't until like I started taking more like microbiology classes and like um, getting into actual research as an undergrad was where I started like really getting into like kind of like basic science. This is where I got into like the microbiome because of like the class I was taking we had talked all about the microbiome and I was like whoa that's crazy to think we got all these microbes around us that can impact certain aspects of our physiology the way we function. It just kind of blew my mind that we basically have like a whole being that lives inside of us that does sorts of things. And then I got interested in how the microbiomes of other organisms impact the way they function and things like that. And so when I was an undergrad, I was a McNair scholar. I give credit to like my whole McNair office, Dr. Matthew De La Sala and Terry Bernstein. Those were my McNair advisors in my undergrad. And I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them. Cause like they really like pushed and advocated for me to like get into summer research because I had such a hard time getting into it because like, you know, I'm a first generation college student. I work throughout college. I have two younger siblings that I 
was honestly responsible for taking care of. My parents probably would not admit it, but I'm like, I was the one taking them to and from school every day and commuting them to like various like education functions. And even like, I went to like their, what do you call them? Like the parent teacher conferences. And I'm just like, yeah, those are things that like, I don't know, my mom's from the Philippines. And so English isn't her first language. Sometimes she'll be like, oh, your English is better than mine, Drea. Like, I'd probably be better for you to do this so you can understand it better than I can. And so, like, you know, I won't be accommodating the understanding of my mother. And then my dad worked at some point throughout my development. He worked at least, like, three jobs, two of them basically full-time and one part-time. And so, like, he wasn't very present to do any of these types of things. And so... That's rough. Yeah. So, at first, I was just like, I just don't think I had the time during the summer to, to do it. I mean, they found a way like to accommodate me and get me to the lab. And I also was just so, so scared of talking to professors because I put them on this, like I had put them on the super high pedestal, like some super smart gurus I can't talk to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but actually now I look at it and I'm like, oh, y'all are just like me, except you get paid more and you have some different types of responsibilities than I do in this point of our lives. But like, Sometimes like a lot of the faculty don't even know what they're doing. And that's how I feel all the time. But so it's like comforting to see that they also don't know. But I had no idea about that as an undergrad because I had nobody to like really look up to because I'm like the first of my family to go to college and graduate and even do this whole higher education thing with grad school. So it's like I call myself a trailblazer in my family, but like it's damn right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just like me just really like paving the way and trying to figure out all these things. I just had no idea. Like I didn't know office hours was a thing I should have been going to until I switched my major and had started doing research with my advisor and as an undergrad. And so like, I guess that kind of gets into like my why about me being a PhD student. Like I'm like very genuinely interested in like basic science and kind of understanding kind of like how life works on on like a molecular type of level, but also really just like being the thing I just didn't have in my educational path until like I actively sought it out. But like UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, my undergrad, uh, always held itself for being like, oh, we are like the most diverse or the second most diverse undergraduate student body in the nation. Like, wow, UNLV is so diverse and blah, blah, blah. We have over like 55% of our student population comes from like racial minority backgrounds, which I think is amazing. I absolutely think it's amazing. Because mm -hmm. like on the Las Vegas Strip, I mean, like you got people who are like first generation Americans, like their parents are either first generation or excuse me, their parents immigrated here. Like say like my mother did, for example, or like their parents don't have a college education. So like the Strip is like the main source of jobs. And like when I was in high school, it's kind of almost expected of you to like, oh, I'll go on the strip to get a job and I'm not going to go to college type of thing. I'll, of course, give like my university like credit for like expanding opportunities to first gen college students, especially those who come from backgrounds who have been historically underrepresented and marginalized in this space. But at the same time, I always hated how they would like laud about how diverse we were. But I'm like, if you look at the grad students, the faculty, the academic staff, like they're all super white. And in even then, when you look at different majors, like I was the only student who identified as a black person who was a biology major who wanted to go on to do research in grad school. Within my major, there's maybe like seven of us, but this major is like the third largest major on campus. 
And like you don't and like it's be rare to see a black student in any of those classes, let alone someone who wasn't pre-med. And I was the only one who was not a pre-med track student who was trying to go to grad school. And so it's like to this day, I have never had an actual instructor who is black. Dr. Cassandra Extravor, she's a professor at Harvard in the Ecology Evolutionary Biology Department. She was like the first this black person I saw give a talk, like a science talk. She was invited for like, um, we had like a, an annual, like invited seminar for a department. I was literally crying in the audience watching her give this talk because it's just so moving to me to like, I just, I could see that I could, it's possible. It's not easy, but I was like, there's really like no black scientists out here. And so she was like the really first black scientist I ever met. When I say scientist, like, someone who's like actually like employed in the profession I think everybody can be a scientist for sure but did you talk to her yes I did and I like cried (laughs) I (laughs) cried oh my god we had like a one-on-one talk and I was like I was so moved by her existing like I remember like they had her face next to her abstract on the walls of our biology department and I was like oh my god that woman has the same curl pattern that I do I was, I was shook. I was like, I was like, oh my God, I cannot miss this. I need to meet this woman. And like, she gave me a hug. I was just like, oh, this is too much. Uh, she's definitely like, um, call her like, if I have like a superstar I looked up to, she's definitely like up there. And so I was like, I need to like, I don't know, be in the space. Cause like, there's just not, I don't know. Like I say enough. Like, I don't think representation is enough in terms of making sure we have enough, like say like black students in the space because there's just so much so many reasons why you don't see say like more African Americans and academia. But just being able to see yourself in that position is just holds a lot of power in and of itself. And so that's like yeah, I'm in grad school because I really like science and I like discovering things that we didn't know before, but I also like want to be the thing that I was missing from my own education, like being like a student's first Maybe not just black instructor, but also like Filipino instructor, because I am black and Filipino. And I will also say that I've never had a Filipino instructor in my life as well. Yeah, I don't know. I just really love mentoring and I don't know, trying to like advocate for I don't know, it's hard to advocate in this space, but definitely trying to make space for other people to come up behind me for sure. And doing this, you know, in the collective community of people who also share this ideal has been really like great not just here at Cornell but also other people I've met along the way and I I also read one of your interviews you say you know you'd like to go into teaching because you didn't have any teachers that were black or Filipino do you think that has affected the kinds of questions that you want answered or the kinds of questions separately in a different vein you were trained to answer research sometimes I try not to kick myself about wanting to be a basic scientist this is just anecdotal. I'm not saying this is true, but like, this is just my own experience of like meeting others, like black people in this space who are also in, you know, academia, who are in STEM. And I see a lot of them doing like the type of work that could be more applied towards directly helping communities who are like suffering disproportionately from certain types of comorbidities and diseases or things that the type of research that directly applies and helps out people directly, whether that be like ag research or biomedical engineering and I'm just like wow I'm out here studying how 
These specific type of molecular pathways work in fruit flies that may not directly have the kind of impact on, you know, informing like clinical practices or actual things that are being used to directly help people. I do think that there is still value in merit because like I shouldn't have to feel obligated to want to find the cure for cancer, diabetes, or like treatments in humans. I do think that like, say like, Black people should feel free to like research whatever we want, not just because like we, it's hard because like I want to, I have this duty to help my community, right? But like, I feel like me helping them isn't through the direct product of my research in terms of like the implications of like actual applied stuff, but more so like the training that comes from like the students that I work with, the people who I mentor type of research impact. So I guess like the questions like, I don't think it super changes the kind of questions I ask. Of course, sometimes it is definitely easier to like apply for NIH grants if I kind of talk about the implications of this research as it translates over to like vertebrate models, of course, and how it ultimately impacts societal well-being and health. But I feel like at my core, asking like those basic research science questions, like I don't think I'll deviate from them anytime soon. I definitely have every right to like want to study what I want to. And like my impact on my community doesn't have to be directly from whatever product I get from the stuff that comes out of my lab. Aside from like the people I interact with and and mentor and like them wanting to then also spread on this good to people within their close circles and to the communities that they end up being with long-term, that type of impact is maybe probably more important to me. You were saying at some point, and I want to go back and ask just because it sounds so interesting. It also sounds incredibly hard to switch from pre-nursing as an undergrad to your bio major. And then we were emailing about this earlier and you were saying that your research interest also kind of like changed a bit. Changing these kinds of things to my mind is hard and scary. Yeah, so at least touching on like my undergrad major change, that was definitely not easy at all. But I kept thinking about my, I don't know, my own happiness. And I'm like, would I actually be happy doing like, not to say that being a nurse isn't a rewarding career. I mean, I think it is. I have so much respect for people who work in that field. But I was really, I really had like a heart to heart with myself about like, wow, is this like something I felt like I was forced to do because like I'm expected to do it. There's like, there's kind of like this stereotype of like Filipino nurses being a thing. Cause like my mom, she had like her coworkers, whatever daughters they had, they were going on to be nurses. And so transitioning to a bio major was hard from the coursework. Cause like I had to catch up on my math classes, my chemistry courses, like the chemistry and math classes I took for my pre-nursing major did not apply to my bio major. They weren't where they needed to be. So I had to like... I took, I basically took summer semester courses all throughout my undergrad to like try to play catch up. That was not fun, especially like the whole math thing. Cause I had college algebra, but I needed like pre-calc two to be able to even get into my bio major. But I was just, I would say like, I say I toughed it out. I would say the kind of tendencies I had as an undergrad were not healthy, but I just kind of like bit my teeth and grit through it. Cause I'm like, I don't, I did not want to be on that path anymore because I didn't see myself in it. And I didn't want to be a half-hearted nurse because I don't think we need half-hearted nurses. I definitely relied on like my McNair network 
Like one of my, uh, she's one of my closest friends. Her name's Katie Randolph. She's uh, now going into her second year here at Cornell, actually, in the BEE program. Oh. And so it's kind of wild that like we were in McNair together in undergrad. And so now we're here as grad students at Cornell. Her and like other people I knew in the McNair and Trio office that like kind of got me through <laughs> just playing catch up with my bio major because it took me like, yeah, maybe like a full blown year to just get the courses I needed to get into the actual major. So it took me like, five years to graduate it took me like an extra year but it probably would have been an extra like year and a half or two years if i didn't do summer courses of course yeah yeah it's funny because like i took organic chemistry two over the summer which i don't recommend anybody do unless you got a death wish i was exhausted because it's like at the end of each week you take an exam which in a normal semester it'd be like after six weeks you have an exam wow it's this weird feeling of being exhausted, but also I was like taking large cups of coffee at the time. And so like my heart rate is like beating super fast, but I'm exhausted at the same time. And so but I did it. I got a B plus, which I'm super proud of. Yeah, I'll never let any, like, these pre-med students are wild. I mean, love them for going on this path, but people will definitely GPA shame you for no reason. I'd be like, oh, like, I wouldn't say that GP out loud if that was mine. Like, I had the pre-med student tell me that to my face when I said that I had, like, I was happy to be graduating with a, a 3.2 with my undergrad GPA. And they're like, oh, I wouldn't say that if I was you. And I'm like, well, I already said it. So, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I guess, like, the switch from, like, being maybe microbiome heavy to, like, now I'm kind of more, like, host pathogen heavy. So it's kind of, like, my research is very broadly like the impact of diet on host pathogen dynamics, particularly how high sugar diets impact infection survival of the host. And I was really, really, really like really into how like the microbiome impacts different host traits and things like that. And like I know like the advisor I have now, his lab is like very much like host pathogen type of emphasis and so I think that kind of played a part in it to an extent but also like I was kind of I still am very much interested but my thesis I don't think I'll have time to go into this aspect of like that host pathogen microbiome interaction because that was something that I was really genuinely interested to explore when first coming here I did an NSF GRFP the first year I came here and when reading I kind of just got down this rabbit hole where I got really interested on like immune metabolic interactions. So like this crosstalk between the immune system and metabolism. And I got kind of lost in this rabbit hole of papers that went off on that. And especially how it pertains to like a, an infection with a pathogen. And so I think I just kind of got hooked on that, even though I, I do still have like this like love and interest of like the impact of the microbiome on overall host health and function. I think I really got into these immune metabolic type questions while preparing for this NSF JRFP. Cause I did have like a, when writing my thesis perspectives uh, for my A exam, I did have a section that was like about the microbiome. And then when looking at it, I'm like, wow, this is a lot. Um, <laughs> this is a lot, this is a lot to propose to do for a PhD thesis. And I'm like, if I had to cut anything I guess it was that section because like the other kind of questions that I had at that time, and I guess right now, just more interested in answering. But I think I was like, well, the microbiome was always still there for me to investigate. 
later on. And I currently don't foresee myself leaving this career path. So it's definitely something that I could always pursue as a postdoc or even even as like a, a, an a assistant professor one day. I want to talk a little bit about teaching. You were, or maybe still are, I'm not exactly sure, a co-instructor for an entomology course called The Science Behind Bias. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the course and how you became involved in the process. Yeah, so the Science Behind Bias course is a one-credit seminar that we had in fall 2020 in the midst of you know, the pandemic. And basically, like, the whole goal of this course is to really make students aware of the history of basically kind of like how people were exploited or even excluded from certain scientific research and how it happened in the past, but also making them aware that it's still happening to this day, maybe not to the same level of trauma and talking about ways that we as like a science community can mitigate this in the future. So identifying like actionable goals that we can even take ourselves individually to make these types of steps. And this course was, I keep thinking of the word conceived, <laughs> but, but it, <laughs> at least it, in my mind, I had first had the idea for a course like this during the midst of the summer protests of the Black Lives Matter movement. And like really seeing, I think it especially happened after that one birding incident in Central Park where the one black birder was like, I say accosted by this white woman, but seeing like these other like black birders on Twitter talking about their experiences of prejudice, discrimination, exclusion from the birding community and kind of seeing like other like scientists on on this platform talking about ways that like science and academia has like been exclusionary towards people of color, like black people. And it had me like thinking about things I have done prior to even coming to Cornell were like things like eugenics or the exploitation of black slaves, people during like the Holocaust and how like that research that had been done towards Holocaust um, victims and how that has advanced full-blown fields of science, like statistics being a field founded in eugenics, eugenics, right? And so I had gotten really like, I could say inspired or motivated. So I created like a Twitter thread where I talked about Carl Linnaeus. He's considered like the grandfather of taxonomy. And so within entomology, you know, it's a really huge community of systematists, people who, you know, like characterize and build like taxonomy of different, you know, like insect orders, families, genus, species. And um, within the entomology grassroots community, we've been, I guess, successfully now renamed this game that we had during the actual... Entomological Society of America conference where it's called the Linnaean Games. It's basically like a trivia game for grad students. And so we were trying to get the name changed because Carl Linnaeus is problematic. And so I made this Twitter thread about like what exactly about his work that's problematic. And so I had this whole thread where I talked about how like, yeah, you may know him as Godfather Taxonomy, but he's also like played a role in like the kind of like the really racist caricatures and stereotypes that we have about different ethnic groups today he would describe different species of humans and then having like this really this honestly like racist descriptors of them that kind of led to then you know race-based science and so i had this whole thread and it in my brain it went viral but like (laughs) (laughs) 
I saw all these little professor, like evolution faculty, like people who are postdocs and study evolution. And they're like, wow, like I had no idea about this. I had no idea that Linnaeus did this type of work and them really having no idea about this. And even just like taking some classes and it's just like how colonial centric it is. And like, oh, like, oh, we discovered this, even though that there have been people established on these lands for centuries who like know the flora, know the fauna, but their names will never get the credit that they deserve because that history has been erased. I got into a debate on Twitter within that thread with this guy who's just like, because I was basically I advocated at the end of that thread that we need to be teaching more about this within our curriculum, that students need to learn more about not just the molecular mechanisms of whatever in genetics or knowing about the, what, what is evolution, but talking about the people who is responsible for founding these fields, really learning about the humans that were involved in the science process from the ones who accepted the idea, but also those who have been exploited. Dr. Mills, he's like the, the grandfather of gynecology, but all his research was using black women slaves to like, like the scalpula thing, the thing you get inserted inside of your, your vaginal canal, like that work was perfected on black women, black slaves, before then going off to use it on like, you know, white women. And like, and you know, people who just excuse that history, but like, oh, look at all the great things that they've done. But I'm just like, I like, oh, we can't do anything about the past. Do we have to name things after them though? Yeah, we don't have to have whole buildings named after them. I interviewed for Johns Hopkins, one of their programs when I was looking for grad school, and they had named a building after Henrietta Lacks. If you don't know about Henrietta Lacks, you know, y'all need to like look into her history. But it's like, so is that the best that Johns Hopkins University can do for Henrietta Lacks? Postmortem is to erect a building in her name, despite like her family not getting any of the royalties or any profit from the Gila cell lines that have been used for groundbreaking research since they were harvested from her. And so also my brother is a history major. And so me and him would talk about this stuff, how in his own, like part of his curriculum, part of his classes as a history student, he learns more in his classes about how say, like, black people have been exploited for scientific research than any science student that I know, including myself. Like I had to look this up independently or refer to my brother's own readings for my own education. And I'm like, I shouldn't have to do that. This should be part of our curriculum. It is part of the science, right? Absolutely. Like, I feel like people forget that, like, science is done by humans. And (laughs) (laughs) humans are not perfect. We're biased. Absolutely. So, like, I was talking to my advisor about, like, I don't know if, like, is there, like, a way to, like, kind of get something like this going? Like, I would really love to, like, help lead like even like a seminar course on this. And then I had heard through the grapevine that uh, Dr. Corey Moreau, a folk professor in my department in entomology, she had also was like starting to plan out this whole type of similar class that I was thinking of. I think for her, I think I could be forgetting wrong. I think for her, she had first started thinking of how like bias in general, in terms of like how certain groups are excluded from certain type of research and so like certain groups aren't given like the attention that they deserve when it comes to clinical trials or things like that and talking about like other groups such as like people with disabilities lgbtq women and i think i was really more focused on like the historical context of bias and so 
I approached her about the course I heard that she was planning to do for that fall semester. Writing on, I say like the, the absolute need to have a course like this in light of the type of events that were going on in the country. I mean, I guess still to this day. Yeah, so we got to talking about like combining our ideas for this course for the fall. And so I had also roped in a fellow grad student of mine, uh, Amelia Juliet, a PhD candidate in EEB at Cornell into designing this course, designing the syllabus and the readings, where we kind of would start off with historical context, like the role of colonialism and slavery and, and natural sciences and race-based science to then transition into like, okay, how today are like, say women and people with disabilities are like biased towards um, when it comes to scientific research and then towards the end of the course, of course. We talk about actionable goals that people can take away with. I unfortunately did not get to actually fully participate as a live instructor for the course because both of my parents caught COVID right before the semester started. And oh my God. yeah, and my dad was, my mom, both my parents were hospitalized. And then it was finally when my dad was intubated was where I was like, uh, I can't be in Ithaca anymore. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. Yeah. Fortunately... Both of my parents are alive, of course, not with any like, you know, lingering impacts of COVID because like my dad especially got really hit hard with COVID. And so he hasn't really physically been the same since, but it was just too much of like an emotional toll for me to like be present during, well, anything in my life other than the survival of me and my family. I do look forward to participating in future iterations of the course. I don't think it'll be offered this fall. I think it would be like an every other year type of offering for the seminar. Of course, I had to check in with Corey and see how she envisioned that. But ideally, I'd really like to participate again and more and like add more to the course if possible. And I got really excited. I think I saw an announcement that said that I think within CALS, students are now expected to take some sort of social science revolved around STEM. It's not super specific. It's like, here's like a list of like 50 plus courses that you can take that satisfies this requirement, (laughs) which like, I appreciate the effort. I feel like it could be more intentional, but um, roll with it, I guess for now. I really, I really would like to envision across the board for like part of science student training, this type of course. I read that you like attending anime conventions. I do. (laughs) Tell me more. Do you have like a favorite interaction? Yes. Uh, Sorry, I'm over here like this reminiscing about anime conventions because it's just, uh, you know, it's a great way to, it's kind of like, I would say it's like Halloween where you can like dress up as someone else and for, for a weekend be with other people who also share your energy of love and admiration for anime and manga. I just think in general, like just being in cosplay and you find other people who are cosplaying from the same universe that your character's from. And then you're like, oh my God, I love your cosplay so much. It looks so good. And then it's like, can I take a picture with you? And I'm just like, yes. I'm like, I'm gonna take a picture with you. So it's like, I just love like, it's just such a very like, warm excited like energy this feels like a blanket type of feeling it's just like a warm air to me uh, especially with interactions like that and like just 
kind of like meeting people at conventions that you'd become friends with for the weekend and still keep in contact with afterwards. I would say the most recent con I went to, which was actually like a few weeks before the shutdown happened. Yeah, it was KatsuCon in like the Washington DC area. I went in like Valentine's weekend of 2020, which is like wild to me to think about because then like, you know, the next month everything was shut down. But there was like, I saw this guy, he was cosplaying um, my favorite, one of my favorite anime characters from one of my favorite anime of all time. So it's a classic 90s anime called Yu Yu Hakusho. And he was cosplaying his character named Kuwabara. And I thought his Kuwabara cosplay was amazing. And I like fangirled so hard. I was so much. I like did like a little scream and everything. I was like, oh my God, can I get a picture with you? And and he's just like, of course. And like, what's so great about people who cosplay is like, we definitely try to the best of our ability to stay in character of the person that we're cosplaying as. Yeah, so he did the voice of the character for like the English dub. Because uh, Kuwabara is this kind of character who's like a, he's like a gentleman, you know, put, put women first type of thing at his own. He'll like sacrifice, he'll put his life on the line for you type of thing. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I have issues with that. I, I have mixed feelings, but... But he's just like a really sweet guy. I was super charming. I was like, ah, my face is just like, I'm blushing. So that was like a really nice like con moment that I had before, you know, everything had like shut down. So, yes. Thank you for sharing all that, Drea. Thank you so much for chatting with me. This has been so much fun. No, thank you. This is really great. I really, I think needed conversation for me to just kind of like, I don't know, gush about things that I don't, think I put in as much time into thinking as I maybe could but but thank you this has been a pleasure I loved my chat with Drea and we touched on so many topics from the importance of prioritizing your happiness to the value of representation the awareness that science is done by humans and from chatting about her McNair Scholars Network to her working on defining actionable goals for the science community when designing the science behind bias course I just got this deep awareness of the importance of being part of a healthy community. Sometimes we have to actively look for these communities, sometimes we have to build them, sometimes we reap the benefits of being part of them, and sometimes we have to work on improving them. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening, I will talk to you again soon.